So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law, but under grace. We are in Romans chapter 6. We've transitioned from in the book of Romans from justification to sanctification. And uh, the differences between justification and sanctification are profound. We need to understand that these are two different doctrines, and we need to grasp and understand the differences between the two. So, for example, justification uh, is where God declares a sinner righteous, but in sanctification uh, it is where God is in the process through the Holy Spirit of making us righteous. In justification, God, it's a monergistic act. And in sanctification, it's synergistic. What's the difference? Monergistic means that it is God only doing the work. God begins it and brings it all about when it comes to justification. But when it comes to sanctification, we are cooperating with God. Uh, um, Justification is an objective fact. It's just, it is. Sanctification is subjective, and, and sometimes it doesn't feel very much like we're making progress and, and, and all of that. Uh, uh, justification is a one-time act of grace where God brings us into his family. A sanctification is a continuous work of God's grace that we experience throughout a day even. A justification addresses our, the guilt and penalty of sin, whereas sanctification addresses the growth and the power of sin in our lives. A justification changes our position before God. A sanctification changes our disposition before God. That's a neat way of thinking of it, uh, perhaps, and how we carry out our lives. A justification causes our salvation, right? Um, sanctification is the fruit or the result of our salvation. Right? And then maybe just one final one, uh, justification addresses our standing before God. Sanctification is addressing and focusing on our experience of our relationship to God here in our earthly life. Okay, so these are just some differences between these two doctrines that are, are just critical for us to understand. Okay, last week we dug into the first 10 verses, and, and Paul, in light of salvation and, and justification, uh, he is answering this question, you know, that people are bringing up should we continue in sin so that God can glorify himself? by showing even more grace. And that's the question that's being asked. Can we continue in sin so that grace may be abound? And Paul essentially says, are you out of your mind? Absolutely not. If you think that we can continue to relate to sin just as we used to do, we clearly do not understand the gospel and what God did in our justification. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. We were at war with God. We were wholly incapable of doing anything spiritually righteous before God. But when God united us, when he baptized us in the Holy Spirit, 
right? He, he united us. He brought us to life spiritually. He united us with Christ. He united us with the body of Christ, the church. And this union with Christ, it is real. It is profound. This means that Jesus' life is my life. Jesus' death is my death. Jesus' resurrection is my resurrection. So when Jesus died and he rose again, his relationship to our sin was ended. If you think about it, he, Jesus never sinned, but he did have a relationship to sin, to our sin, right? He took our, his, our sin upon him. He endured the shame. He paid the penalty of our sin. He defeated sin's destiny, the grave. And through our union and identity with him, because Jesus' life is our life, God has now changed our relationship with sin. We are dead to sin. Last week, we are dead to sin. And what does that mean? I gave you a simple Little way to remember it. Do you remember it? Probably not. You probably forgot it by the time you got to that. I understand, okay? It's just normal. I have no illusions that you remember anything I say by the time you get to the restaurant, okay? That's why small groups are important, so you can revisit it on Wednesday nights, okay? But I gave you an easy way to remember it. Sin remains in us, but it no longer reigns in us once we are united to Christ. Sin remains in us, but it no longer re- reigns in us once we are united to Christ. The absolute power and dominion and authority of sin over us has been broken. In other words, our inability to not sin, our inability to live righteously, our inability to seek after God, Our inability to please God, our inability to live for God, our inability to love God, to serve God, to live for God, that has all ended. Why? Because the old self that was dominated, that was ruled by sin, was crucified with Christ. It died with Christ on the cross. And now we have this new self that's been raised with Christ with new power and a new destiny, and a new king and ruler who's at work in our life. So we have this new nature, this new heart that is alive to God instead of being dead in sin. So now we want to not sin. We want to live righteously. We respond to sin differently now. We want to commune with God and please God and live for God and love Him. We're dead to sin. We've died to sin. What we covered last week. So why do we still sin? That's the thousand, well, more than the thousand, maybe that's the million dollar question, right? I mean, that's the question last week. We went to, Kat and I went to Roadhouse for lunch afterwards, right? 
truly empty nesters. And we said, let's go get lunch. And so we went to Roadhouse and we splurged a little bit. And apparently we beat all the other churches because about half of Roadhouse was filled with covenant last week. And uh, so we sat down and we started having lunch and, and I, I, I gulped and I asked her opinion about my sermon. I do that with trepidation most of the time. And uh, because she's, she'll be honest with me, you know, where I do good, you know, and so she doesn't cut me any corners, any slack. And that's just our agreement. And, and she said this, she said, you know, it sure doesn't feel like I'm dead to sin. If I'm dead to sin, why do I still sin so much? That was her question to me, okay? And and by the way, uh, her question was a good question, a fair question, and it was a question that many of you asked me after the service last week. And so I was actually very ready with an answer for her. When I asked her the question, I had a feeling that she would ask that, ask that question and bring that up. And so I was ready. And without missing a beat, I said, honey, that is just your mind playing tricks on you. We've been married for 30 years and you've only sinned like twice. And we both know those were my fault. <laughs> right? Good answer, right? Right. right? Fellas, that's the difference between intelligence and wisdom. Okay. That's what that is right there. All right. (laughs) Actually, I did give her a a legitimate answer. And I told her, I said, got to remember, realize the scripture says in Romans 6 that we died to the sin nature. It doesn't say that the sin nature died to us. And that's an important distinction. We died to the sin nature, not the sin nature died to us. God has broken the power of the sin nature over us, but he has not eradicated the sin nature's power. He's made it so that we do not have to listen to that old tyrant who ruled over us. But that old tyrannical ruler still exists and desires to exert influence and control in our lives. So our passage this morning is actually Paul's solution to Catherine's question. Yes, we're dead to sin. The power of sin has been broken and we are risen in Christ. So how does this spiritual truth that's real and it's actual, how does it become an everyday reality so that... We have victory over the sin nature when it seeks to regain control and exert its influence in our lives. That's what our passage gets to. And and interestingly, here in the book of Romans, for the first time in this passage, Paul tells us we must do something. So far in the book of Romans, Paul's focus has all been on who we are who we are. But now, who we are is supposed to affect how we live. It's supposed to affect our response to truth. And so there's two responses in these passages, two gospel applications. They revolve around two simple words, the words consider and the words present. That's what we're going to get into this morning. First of all, consider in verses 11 and 12, consider, believe what God says about you and appropriate it as your new normal. 
believe what God says about you and appropriate it as your new normal. So you also must consider, he says, yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. That word consider comes from the Greek word logizomai. It's come into the English language in various forms, logic, logistics, uh, a transactional log, uh, a logarithm, right? You kind of get, there's a theme here, right? It's a a mathematical business accounting type of term. Uh, Sometimes it's translated as reckon or to credit or to take into account. It literally means to credit something to someone as something. That's clear as mud, right? (laughs) To credit something to someone as something. The best example of it is that God, Jesus' righteousness, has been credited to us so that we stand before God as righteous. And that's Logizma. God has credited Jesus' righteousness to us so that we are now righteous. That's a great example of that word. And so his point is, since you know that it is true that you have died to sin, count on it, reckon it to be true, act upon it, appropriate it. God has said this about you. You know, you know your emotions may say it's not true. Your culture may say it's not true. There may be other voices in your life that say this is not true about you, but God has said this is true about you. So what are you going to do with that? Paul says, consider it, reckon it, count it as fact, and now appropriate it and act upon it. Essentially what Paul is doing here is he's bringing us right back to the foundations of the gospel which is faith. Faith. In Romans chapter 1, verse 17, Paul tells us that in the gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. He's saying it's not enough for you to intellectually know this fact that you are dead to sin. You must believe it and now appropriate it and act upon it in your daily life. The tense of the verb here is very important. It's a present tense. It's a continual daily activity where we go through this action of taking this truth and meditating upon it, preaching it to ourselves, and appropriating it for ourselves so that we experience the power that it contains. Let me me illustrate what he's getting at in this way. Back in 2009... It made the news, these two guys right here. These are the Pilati brothers, Zolt and Geza Pilati. They were homeless in 2009, living in a cave outside of Budapest, Hungary. They were on a subsistence level of existence, begging for food, getting trinkets and scrap and, you know, getting it together to try to get food and, and just to survive. When one day... An aid worker came to them and said, there's some lawyers who would like to meet with you. And they took them into the city and brought them to an office. And the lawyer sat down with them and said, we are not conning you. We are not telling you lies. This is the truth. 
You have a grandmother who lives in Germany who has passed away, and you are her sole heirs, and she has left her, her estate to you. Uh, there's you two, and there's a sister in America, and your share of this estate is $7 billion. That's billion with a B, right? Unbelievable, right? Now, their new legal status as the heirs to rich German grandma could have a profound impact on their lives. I think we could all agree to that, right? But you notice I said the word could. They could leave their cave and move into grandma's mansion. Shoot, they could go build their own mansions with $7 billion, right? And have a completely different life for the rest of their existence. But you know what they could do? They could have decided to go back. That's their actual cave. That's where they were living. They could have decided to go back to their cave. They could have decided to stay there, never have left it, and lived and said, you know, thanks, but no thanks. Jerry Clem in Palm Bay, Florida could do much better with this $7 billion. That's what they should have done, right? Or they could have gone to grandma's mansion and lived there for a while and enjoyed it and said, you know, we really miss the comfort of that hard cave floor. We're going back to the cave. All of those are things that they could have done, even though legally they are now billionaires. Of course, if they had done all of those options, then we would all agree, I think, right? If they had done any of options two or three, anything other than let's take this inheritance and have our lives changed forever, if they had gone back to the cave or stayed in the cave, we would all agree that would be incredibly what? Dumb. Yeah, foolish. I mean, what are you thinking? Why on earth would you continue to live as beggars when you are unbelievably, even insanely rich? It makes no sense at all to do such a thing because all you needed to do is claim the rights that you have as the heirs to rich grandma. By the way, a similar situation happened in Spain and that person ran away from the people and died as a beggar. It wasn't $7 billion, it was actually about $6 million inheritance and ran away and stayed a beggar. He choose, chose poorly. <laughs> Yet, you know, this is exactly the predicament that each of us as Christians face when you think about it. God legally declared us righteous in Jesus Christ. We are sons and daughters of God. We are joint heirs with Jesus Christ. We are now dead to sin. We are alive to, in Christ with a new life and a new king and a new power. Sin's power over us has been broken. The Holy Spirit now lives in us. We have this new power and this new ability, this is who we are. In every way. So why would we ever go back to our old cave? Why would we ever go back to the poverty of who we were? Why would we ever go back to the rule of that tyrannical power and listen to anything he has to say? How foolish to leave 
the grandeur of this new life and go back to who we were. That's just dumb. That's Paul's point, folks. If we don't understand that, we don't understand the gospel. To leave who we are in Christ and to even temporarily go back, it, it just doesn't make sense. It's foolish. Why would we do this? The result of appropriating who we are is sin will no longer reign in us, he says. Verse 13. What does that mean? That it will no longer reign? It doesn't mean that we will be sinless. We see this in chapter 7, right? We're going to get into chapter 7 at the end of the year, first of next year. And, and sin, we are clearly going to sin against. I mean, all we have to do is think about what John tells us in 1 John. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Church, I don't want to preach to you some pie in the sky type of theology. We have to understand that we have this power, we have this new identity, we have this ability, but we still have this remaining tyrannical power in our lives that seeks to influence us. There is this war within us. We're going to get into this in chapter 7, and sometimes we're going to lose battles in this war. Sometimes it feels like, it may even feel like we're losing the war. When you're addicted to things and you are in a habitual sin, it will feel like you're losing the war. But that's why verses like 1 John 1, 8 and 9 are so important for us to know. No, we're not going to lose this war. Ultimately, we will not lose because we are in Christ. And this is who we are. So it doesn't mean that we will never sin again. When it says sin will no longer reign over us, it does not mean that we will not sin again. It does not even mean that we won't have sins that beset us. And it sometimes just content, make our life miserable. So what does it mean? Really, I think what it's getting at, getting at here is that our response to sin is going to be drastically different. We, we will find it in incapable of tolerating sin and luxuriating in sin and enjoying and delighting in sin, just breathing it in and, and having fun in it the way we used to. There may be a little pleasure in it for a second, but then what happens? Sorrow, grief, conviction arises and we're compelled to repent and confess We'll be, sometimes we'll be disgusted. You ever been disgusted with yourself? I'm mean, just be honest. Have you ever just been, what am I thinking? Why on earth did I ever do? Why did I say that? What is wrong? Have you ever said, what is wrong with me? You ever said that to yourself? Okay. Hey, well, what's wrong with you is that the sin nature is still in you. That absolute tyrannical power has been broken you have died to sin, but the sin nature has not died to you. And that sin nature is still trying to exert power over you. That's what's wrong. And sometimes we forget who we are and we listen. Um, Tim Keller uh, says this. He says, Paul is not saying that Christians cannot commit individual acts of sin, nor even that they cannot struggle with habitual sins. He is saying that they cannot go on abiding in the realm of sin. 
They cannot continue in, deliberately, in it deliberately without distaste or dis- diminishment. In other words, your life starts going downhill. Life is not good when you tolerate or you try to coddle sin as a Christian. You just feel bad. You're miserable, right? They do not live in sin anymore. Instead, they are alive to God. You know, think of the sin nature like a deposed, tyrannical king who still roams the countryside, waging war against the new regime, seeking to influence the citizens that he used to rule. Every time we sin, right, we are refusing to appropriate and recognize who we are in Jesus Christ. We're refusing to recognize that we have this new power and this new king that is reigning in our lives. But every time sin seeks to regain our allegiance and he tempts us and he tries to regain our allegiance and every time that happens and instead we preach the gospel to ourselves and we consider this and we appropriate this truth and we believe what God says about us instead of the temptation that's before us and we act upon this truth that God gives us every time that he tempts us and seeks to regain that allegiance, and instead we consider what God says, sin's defeated. He's defeated. And we will not give in to that temptation. That is why this is so incredibly powerful, to consider, believe what God says about you, and appropriate it as your new normal. Secondly, present. Present. Since we are now alive to God, deliberately offer and commit yourself to Him for His use. Verse 13 says, Do not present your members to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who've been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you're not under law, but under grace. Our sin nature no longer defines us. It no longer has this absolute control over us. It is present within us. And most often it will reveal itself through our bodies. Uh, you, you know, we have some expressions, right? You know, we need to put a lock on our lips. We need to, you know, guard our thoughts. We need to watch what we look at. We have these expressions that are all related to our bodies or our minds. It's not that our, our material bodies are inherently intrinsically evil. Not at all. Okay. What it is, though, is that the sin nature, the, the, the body, the material body, ends up becoming the conduit through which the sin nature most often expresses itself. So in response to God and His grace and joining us to Christ, he, Paul tells us to present ourselves, present our bodies, present the totality of our being, everything about our lives, our physical bodies, the the members of our bodies, and everything to do with our life, our children, our careers, our time, our treasures, our talents, our bank accounts, our dreams, our ambitions, 
everything about us to present them to God. What does he mean by that, to present them to God? Let me illustrate it in this way. And let me do it by way of a, of a marriage. Okay? So this morning, I texted a bunch of guys, and I asked them this question. I said, your wife made wedding vows to you, to love you, to cherish you, to respect you, and all that. What are some practical, everyday life examples of how she does this that you greatly appreciate? Now, kids, let me just say that I'm going to edit out all the mushy stuff. Okay, so you can relax. Are there Walter kids here? Walter kids, you can relax. Your daddy, Kyle, gave me all kinds of good stuff. Here's a good one. David Schatz, Lauren, this is nice. One simple thing that always makes me feel loved is when we're both stressed and overworked and I get home on Tuesday night and she's taking the trash cans to the curb for me. Not because she has to, I normally do it, but because she knows it makes my getting home better. Let's all go, aw, aw, that's sweet, sweet. That's good, Lauren, It's nice. Charles Schillinger, this is awesome, Pam. This is good. After we got married, without me knowing, Pam would meet with my mom and ask her to teach her all of my favorite dishes. She makes them for me throughout the year, especially on my birthdays and during times when she knows I'm stressed at work, about to start or going through a big trial. They are comforting. She made my favorite meal when Alabama just lost to Auburn. Oh, okay, I added that part in. But anyway... I just thought I would throw that in there. <laughs> I couldn't resist Wilson. Sorry. <laughs> um, here's a good one from Brian Lumshu Chan. This is funny. I didn't notice about Brian. Uh, Debbie never talks bad about me to others. She's always positive. And another small thing is she doesn't nag or try to change the way I am. My whole life, I've had a bad habit of not closing things after I open them. The sock drawer, the pantry door, the kitchen cabinets, etc. My parents even tried to spank it out of me, increasing the number of spankings every time I left something open and it didn't work. They gave up when the count exceeded 30. (laughs) (laughs) Debbie and the kids just laugh at me and follow behind me closing things. Now, after 30 years of marriage, her love for me has made me try to work on being better at this. Oh, and she's a really good cook. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Wilson Sims, June, brace yourself. Uh, Every time I even have a small one-day trip or a month away, car or plane, as she kisses me goodbye, she goes through this routine. Do you have your keys? Do you have your wallet, your money, your passport, your boarding pass, your ticket, your glasses, your hearing aid batteries, on and on? (laughs) Sometimes I get angry and I think, "Does does she think I'm stupid? And then I think... Thank the Lord for her, as without her, I would have forgotten something important. (laughs) And later on, he says, and occasionally she buys me Iron Bowl tickets for about $1,000 each for me and my friend Ken. And since 1972, every time we've gone, we've not lost. That's the Auburn-Alabama game, to which Charles Schillinger replied, note to self, sabotage Willie's next Iron Bowl trip, roll tide. It just never ends, right? So anyway, good stuff. What's the point here in all of that, right? You know, when we got married, 
We made a vow. If you're married, you made a vow to your spouse. And that was an important milestone. It was a soul-level commitment to that other person that you were going to love them, you were going to cherish them, you were going to respect them, you were going to give your life for them. Uh, But those were not just one-time empty words. Now, it was an important commitment that you made, right? At one point in time, then leads to thousands through the years of expressions of that one-time commitment. Are you following with me here? Okay, And it even leads to expressions of commitment and love when you don't actually sometimes feel too loving towards each other. That's why it's for better or for worse. Right? And the reason why I bring this up as an example is because in this passage here, the word present is the idea of that one-time act like a marriage vow where you, you commit your life to Lord Jesus Christ, your body. He died for you. You've trusted in him. Don't you know your body has been bought with a price? Everything about you belongs to him. Everything. Your hands, your feet, your mouth, your brain, your career, your children, your ambitions, your desires, your time, your bank accounts, your vacations, your recreation, everything that we are belongs to him because he bought us with his blood. And he says, now, commit yourself to me. Commit me. Make that vow. Present yourself to me. For me, in October 11th, 1983, I had that moment with Christ where I finally said, no more me. I am yours to do with whatever you want. Everything is yours. And that changed the entire trajectory of my life. It's a mindset of surrender that Jesus is Lord. He's a loving, good Lord and Savior. And when we make this commitment, and the tense here is eris, it's a one-time point commitment, it then leads to ongoing activity so that when that tyrant begins to tempt, you say, oh, wait a second. This body doesn't belong to me even, and it certainly doesn't belong to you. It belongs to Jesus. No. No, I can't do this. I can't dishonor my Lord in this way. It changes everything. I never forget my mentor and pastor, Rod Whitehead, used to say that whenever he was tempted in ministry and sometimes in sin, and it would have been scandalous sin, the thing, one of the things that checked him was like, oh, wait a second. I don't belong to me. I belong to Pinewood Presbyterian Church. I belong to the Lord Jesus Christ. I can't, I can't do this and bring shame upon the Lord and and to these people. And it checks that behavior and that maybe that sinful urge that is there because the sin nature is tempting and we live a holy life. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, I've talked to him before I've explained to you about his work in the book of Romans. 
And, uh, and he says this, he says, what is the business of grace? Is it to allow us to continue in sin? No, it's to deliver us from the bondage and the reign of sin and to put us under the reign of grace. I am so glad. In verse 13 or 14, when he says, sin will not have dominion over you since you're not under law, but under grace. That Paul's answer to how does this reality of who we are become the reality of our everyday life, that Paul's answer was not a whole long list of do's and don'ts and behavior modification. It was not a return to works righteousness and a religious system of performance. Not at all. It is faith appropriated, being realized, trusting in the grace of our Heavenly Father. All of us need to experience the saving grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Have you experienced that saving grace? Is this Lord that we're talking about, who changes our identity, who gives us meaning in life, is He your Savior? If not, He can be your Savior today. At the close of the service, we'll have people in the back who can pray and they can bring you before the throne of grace and your life can take a completely different direction this morning because this morning you can enter into the family of God and experience that saving grace. All of us need that saving grace from God, but all of us also need that sanctifying grace that also comes through our Savior. We're never going to see victory over sin in our lives if we return to this a work righteousness type of religious performance, it has to be through grace and relying upon that empowering grace that God gives us through Jesus Christ. And church, the good news of the gospel is this grace is ours. It's our new birthright because we're in Jesus Christ. And may that truth be our reality this week. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, may we delight in this grace that you give us. And it's not a grace that is a license to sin. It's a grace that gives power to defeat sin and to see that tyrannical ruler who wants our allegiance defeated more and more in the everyday rhythms of our lives. Father, it's a grace that will give a mother the patience she needs when a child is stomping on that nerve for the 50th time, the very last nerve she has. The grace that will give her the power to love and discipline her child in a way that brings redemption into that child's life one day. It's the grace that keeps men pure when they're tempted by the lust of the flesh or the eyes or the pride of life. It's grace that keeps young people focused upon you so that they grow into men and women of God. Lord, would you pour your grace out upon this congregation so that we would be holy people, not sanctimonious people, not a new breed of Pharisees, but people who are in love with you, Lord Jesus, who, who sense and experience your presence your power comes through our lives in just a myriad of small and big ways as we go through our lives. Would you make us into those kinds of people so that we would bring honor to you and we would bring people to you who don't know you right now?
Would you make that the testimony of our church, we would ask. We live in a broken world, people who need the restoration that only the gospel can bring. In your name we pray, amen.